Exodus chapter 26. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the curtain in one set and do the same with the end in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of other durable leather. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, Make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is, the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west, at the far end of the tabernacle. The centre crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant Law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. 
place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite it on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast five bronze bases for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, uh, Beck, for that. Well, uh, good morning. As I said earlier, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Vic Park Presbyterian, uh, and it's my uh, great pleasure and joy to deliver to you this morning our introduction to our introduction to the book of Leviticus. That is to say that this is not the introduction sermon. That's happening in a couple of weeks' time. We've got a bunch of baptisms next week. That's why we're kind of skipping a week. This is our intro to the intro to Leviticus. And can I say no one's paying me to say this? This is probably, I don't know, the 15th, 20th uh, series I've preached uh, in the Bible over my seven, eight years of pastoral ministry. And I think this is probably the one that I'm most excited about across my years, which might shock you if you know the book of Leviticus. I'll get to why in a moment. Uh, I want to begin by talking about the Skeleton Coast. Hands up if you've ever heard of the Skeleton Coast. A few of us. Uh, it's, a, it's along Namibia uh, in the west of Africa, kind of southwest of Africa. It's the coastline or that, that stretches the majority of Namibia's um, uh, the, the country, and it's probably, it's debated, but it's probably the most hostile stretch of coastline in the world. It's a sandy and desolate area of almost 6,500 square miles, 10,000 square kilometres, where the desert quite literally runs into the sea. And if the lack of water, because there's an incredible dearth, lack of fresh water, because it's a desert, if the lack of water on the shore won't kill you, then the waters offshore will. These waters are famous for their strong currents, their dense fogs, their treacherous sandbanks that are constantly moving. These extreme climatic and geographical conditions when combined with strong sandstorms, is the cause of over a 1,000 shipwrecks over the last 500 years. A 1,000 shipwrecks. And it's these wrecks, together with the skeletons of large sea-going mammals, so think whales, the wrecks and the carcasses dot the shore of this land, hence Skeleton Coast. And even though Skeleton Coast, I think you'll agree, is a cool name, it's not the coolest name that the stretch of coast has. The second coolest name is what the Portuguese navigators called it centuries ago, which is the Beach of Hell. But that's not number one. Number one is what the native bushmen of, of Namibia call it to this day. And its name is this. It's the land that God created in anger. The land that God created in anger. That's sick, isn't it? It's just really cool. 
Uh, why am I starting with the skeleton coast aside from it being an uh, interest of mine? I start there because for many, Leviticus is the skeleton coast of the Scriptures, of the Bible. Littered with thousands of carcasses of animals slain, frightening with its threats of death and judgment, a picture of a tempestuous God, but also like the skeleton coast, dry. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. It's the third book of the Bible, so it's just after that reading that that Beck did so well with. Uh, Leviticus 1, and I'm going to read from verse 3 and onwards. Most of us preachers, when we're um, writing our sermons, as you would have seen that I've just done now, is you kind of think of a way to um, entice and attract the audience. Not so with God and Moses here. Chapter 1, right at the start, verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be acceptable on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, will bring blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put it on the fire and arrange wood on the altar. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, will arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You're to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you would offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, will splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring them all and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Control C, control V, control C, control V, control C, control V for what feels like 24 chapters. It feels dry, almost like reading a recipe book, but worse because it's filled with recipes that you're never going to cook. An instruction manual for a piece of furniture that you're never going to build and sit on. And think about it after all, it's instructions that God gave three and a half thousand years ago to priests, the Levites, hence Leviticus, but to a, a, a tribe of priests that doesn't exist Instructions about sacrifices that no one, as far as I'm aware, still does, located in a place, the tabernacle, that no longer exists, all to fulfill a purpose that we'll soon realise no longer needs to be fulfilled. Dry and pointless. Not only that, but like the skeleton coast itself, it has shipwrecked many a Bible-in-a-year reading plan. Preach, right? Yeah, you know it. Your experience, if you've come to the Bible for the first time, is you read Genesis and you are loving it. Creation, flood, Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, action-packed. I mean, weird, dysfunctional family towards the end, but then redeemed by Joseph, who's this good guy that does amazing things in Egypt. And then Exodus. Oh, what an incredible start. You're kidding me? Plague of frogs, darkness, angel of death. Look, to be fair, it nosedives in 21 and you've got to read chapters like the one Beck read and then at 40 it's gone, oh my gosh, how much about this tabernacle? It's limping. It's still kind of four out of five. Leviticus, though, non-starter, train wreck, dumpster fire, waste of your time, waste of God's time and Moses' time for writing it and mine for reading it. 
I exaggerate, but I suspect only a little bit, right? Okay, I'm happy to be proved wrong here. Hands up if you in a church, and this can kind of be an indictment on the own church that many of us come from, hands up if you've been through a Leviticus series in church in the last decade. Oh, Melita, well done. Go to her church. Well, that's probably in Brisbane, so that's too far away. Yeah. We kind of avoid it, don't we? And let me, let me add myself to the list of people that have heretofore, up until now, not been exactly smitten with Leviticus. I'm someone whose Bible reading plan has many a time died in those pages. So here's what I propose. I'm going to give you, I'm going to do two things this morning. First thing is, I'm going to give you four reasons why I think studying Leviticus, aside from the fact we feel like we should because it's in the Bible, four reasons, four arguments. I'm not going to prove them today. I'm going to make them, and then over the next 10 weeks, I hope I'm going to prove them, of why studying Leviticus is critical for the life of a 21st century perfect Christian or any Christian at any era. So here's my four reasons for why we should study Leviticus. Reason number one, if you don't know Leviticus, you won't properly understand the rest of the Old Testament, which is the first two-thirds of the Bible before Jesus, but you also won't really deeply understand the rest of the the Bible that is the New Testament after Jesus has come. Let, Let me sharpen that a little bit. Let me be a little more polemical. Without Leviticus, your understanding of the Old and New Testament will have gaping holes. And with it, I would say, your understanding will almost exponentially be improved. So one, because we don't understand our Bible without it. Number two, without the book of Leviticus, it's extremely unlikely that you, that I, that we will either grasp the depth of our sin and our depravity, or on the flip side the molten, magnificent, magnitudinous glory of God. Or to put it kind of in a less wordy way, without Leviticus, you won't understand yourself and you won't understand God, the Creator, properly. Number three, without Leviticus, your understanding of Jesus' death will be likely rather thin and monodimensional it quite possibly will amount to nothing more than Jesus died for my sin. But there is so, so much more going on in Jesus' death that Leviticus gives us the key to unlocking. His sacrifice isn't simply about dying as a substitute. It is that, don't mishear me, it's never less than that. But there's so, so much more going on in his death. And number four, Without Leviticus, I contend that you probably won't understand the importance of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension. That's him going up after his resurrection to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is, you'll probably get that Jesus had to die to rise from the dead, to beat death, to prove he's innocent or God or something like that. But you probably won't understand why he had to ascend to the Father, and you probably won't understand what he's doing right now without Leviticus. Okay. In a nutshell, four points again, won't understand the Bible properly. Two, won't understand yourself or God properly. Three, won't understand the crucifixion properly. Four, you won't understand the resurrection fully. Again, not proving any of that today. My hope is over the 10 weeks that will be proved. Uh, here's one, this is the second part of this morning's sermon. 
Leviticus is more, though, it's more than just teaching you stuff that's good, in fact, critical to know. Because the book of Leviticus is mainly about stuff that was performed and done. That is, the book contains, as you read it, all the instructions that the priests of Israel had to carry out. Ceremonies and rites they performed for nearly 1,500 years. And critically, this. Rituals that if they did not perform, instructions that they did not obey to the letter, then Israel and millennia later, you and me would be eternally ruined. Let me repeat that because that's a hard gear change right there. Is that again? Without Leviticus, without its laws for priests, for sacrifices, for washing, for distinguishing between clean and unclean, profane and holy, all those categories that kind of seem a bit obscure and kind of irrelevant to us, without that, Israel, God's people, you and me, would still be dead in our sins. to became, let me try and make it. Let me try and prove it. It's going to take some explaining, and it's going to be a little bit of a journey for the rest of this morning. It's going to be a winding story, and I love a winding story. Not everyone does. I like tangents. My wife likes living on the straight and narrow. So what I'm going to do is, this is a bit tangential, but I'm going to put some stakes in the ground that when you hear where the, the word that I'm about to give you, the words I'm going to give you, they're kind of stakes to know that we're still on the path that Matt hasn't gone kind of mental, okay? There's seven words... Seven words beginning with S. These seven S's form kind of the backbone of the story. The, the kind of, the, they provide the kind of the, the straight and narrow that I'm going to stay on. So when you hear these seven, I'll allude to them. You'll know we're on the right track. This is the story explaining why Leviticus is so key for our salvation. It's a story, and like most stories, it's best to start like this. A long, long time ago, eons before Leviticus was recorded. On the first page of the Bible, in fact, Genesis 1, the universe was created and it was good. Not only good, but men and women were created. Adam and Eve is the pinnacle of creation. They were very good. And God planted them in a lavish garden to tend and care for this garden and to help this garden kind of spread throughout the world so that the whole world would be made like Eden, Edenized, paradise-ized. This garden was, first S coming up of our seven, first S, this garden, though, was a sacred space. It was a sacred space because God lived there. I mean, God is omnipresent. He's kind of everywhere, but in a special way, he kind of presence, concentrated himself there. In fact, we learn in chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis, chapter 3, the big number, 8, the small, um, big, small number, 3, 8, it says this, Then the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And wherever God is, that is a sacred space. But in that self-same chapter, Genesis chapter 3, our parents rebelled, sinning, second S, sinning against God, believing the lies of that satanic serpent, third S, it's a double S there, satanic serpent, 
believing the lies of certain rather than the truth, Satan, rather than the truth of God. And you'll probably be familiar with the scene, even if you're not a Christian. Adam and Eve tempted to eat tree from the forbidden knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, desiring a knowledge of good and evil, a knowledge that at least for a time had been off limits to them. They, like billions of humanoids after them, not trusting God and his word and his timing, thinking they knew better than God. God's response was immediate. A curse upon the man, a curse upon the woman, a curse upon the serpent, and a curse upon the earth. Genesis chapter 3. A curse which explains so much of our world's suffering, our grief, our frustration, our feeling that the world is not right, that there's kind of sand in the gears of life. As Paul says in Romans 8, reflecting on the scene, our creation at that point was subjected, made subject to frustration. And the pinnacle of that frustration is, of course, death. Death enters the world because of sin. But wherever there is God's judgment, there is also God's mercy. And within that curse, there is a seed of hope. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the serpent, which we find out later as Satan, if we didn't know already. I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you, the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that's Eve's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, the word for offspring here is literally seed. That's our fourth S, if you're following along at home. Fourth S, seed. God promises that the seed of Eve, her eventual offspring, will crush the head of Satan. So kind of a, inside that curse, kind of an Easter egg of a promise, of a hope. But there's also a kindness to God straight after. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, this isn't God just merely providing a fashion accessory. In fact, it's more than God providing warmth for Adam and Eve. This is providing them with protection. But, this is the bit that we often miss, not just protection against the elements, protection against God himself. This is 5th S. This is the very first sacrifice of the Bible. God knows, as he stands before Adam and Eve, that they are now infected with sin. Tongues, tonsils, orifices, organs, blood, bones blighted by evil and corruption. Not just them, but now the universe breathed into existence by the life of God now choking with death, its putrid, fetid stench inhaled and expired by all. And with sin in it, flesh and bone can no longer survive in the presence of God. To a holy God, sin is like kerosene to an open flame. And so God lovingly provides a sacrifice, 
the animal's death in Adam and Eve's place, suffering the death they should have died so that they can be before him. You could think of it like this, sixth S coming up. The blood of the animals forms a shield, sixth S, against God's holiness. But it's only a short-lived solution, a temporary shield. Because God's judgment, God's holiness will fry them. And so Adam and Eve, we may well know this bit of the story, and then us with them, humanity with them, are cast out of the garden. Out of the presence of God, significantly for their own safety. Uh, not only that, but you may well know that the cherubim, don't think cute little angels at, at Valentine's Day, but fiery death angels wielding swords are there to prevent the return to the garden. Chapter 3, verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Men and women can no longer return to their Edenic life with God. And God himself, mind, once who walked the earth in the cool of the day, disappears for a very, very long time. As you read Genesis, you do see him. He appears at the flood, at the Tower of Babel, kind of obscurely, fleetingly, and it seems to be only ever to kind of judge. And it's like that for millennia. The absence feels eternal, but then God appears to a man. Genesis 12, the man's name is Abraham. He's a wandering Aramean. God calls this man from obscurity into relationship. He lavishes blessing, covenant promises on him. He promises this ancient nonagenarian, it's a classy way of saying 90-year-old, promises him a land and many seed, many offspring. In fact, he promises this 90-year-old without any kids at this point, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, sand on the beach, a seed through whom the world will be blessed. And Abraham, Abraham laughs and his wife Sarah scoffs, but sure enough, a son is born. A people is formed and they flourish for the next 500 years. God blessing, guiding these people from a distance, seen in shadows and glimpses of him, opaquely, but he's there. And then God's people, Israel as they're known, grow, multiply, and become enslaved as foreigners in Egypt, a distant land of hostile gods. And then another half a millennia, 500 years passes. Then out of nowhere it feels in 1500 BC or thereabouts, God not only delivers his people, his seed from the clutches of Pharaoh, through mighty signs and wonders. Not only does he do that, not only does he promise them a new land, or really Abraham's land to be fair, a land flowing of, with milk and honey, but then in the second book of the Bible, about a hundred or so pages in, Exodus chapter 40, in fact, 26 actually kind of prefigures this, God announces his coming to the earth 
to live with Abraham's seed, Israel, God's people. God absent, now present. God transcendent, now imminent. God infinite, now intimate. And this is absolutely the best and the worst news possible for any human being. Because in Exodus 40, Yahweh, that's his special name, the creator, the most high, comes all the way down to live in a new sacred space. That was our first S. In a tabernacle, which Beck read to us. Think of it, if you, if you kind of wouldn't work it out, couldn't work it out, it's a portable temple tent. Comes to live in a tabernacle, but among, in the middle of Israel's camp, in the middle of his people. The glory of the Lord fills the sacred space in the heart of their living quarters. Yes, it's true that he he lives in a sealed section, in the Holy of Holies, a place that only one man once a year can enter into, a place guarded like Eden with cherubim. Pictures of those dread angels are woven into the, the, the fabric of this tent. But he is there, not in heaven, not on a mountain, just him and Moses, but he lives in the camp of Israel. There are nearly two million people there. And every single one of them is about to die instantly. Singed to a crisp. Sin cannot survive the dread holiness of the triune God. See, God's presence is a blessing, of course, but it's also to an unholy humanity, the curse of death. God's people are about to be fried, a seed popped like corn in the microwave of God's wrath. And that seed long ago prophesied that would crush Satan's head. He and his bloodline would be cut off, the hope gone. All hope would be lost. But God acts immediately, and he saves our seventh S, our final S, he saves. And he saves them by speaking to Moses and by giving him, telling him Leviticus. See, God Almighty loves his people enough to draw himself down from on high to live with them, to draw near to them, but he also, out of his sheer abundant love, also provides a way that they can draw near to him without being toast. Yahweh God, the Father, the protector of Israel. And so so what does he do? Well, he quickly provides for them hundreds of defenses and shields, our fourth or fifth S there, and escape hatches, so they would not be instantly fried by the loveliness of his holiness. If you're kind of a Harry Potter fan, think of it, it's a bit like defense against the dark arts. But the image is inverted It's defending Israel because of their dark hearts against the radiant light of God's holiness. And in this book, he describes hundreds, if not thousands of ways to wash away sin, burn away sin, carry away sin, tip out sin, scrape off sin, cut off skin, push out sin, insulate against sin, speak against sin, and most relentlessly on page after page after page, a way to drown sin in the blood of another. 
Israel shielding themselves in the skin of a sacrifice. Their blood doomed, the blood bought by the death of another. In fact, as you read uh, Leviticus, one thing we're going to look at in two weeks' time, and it's going to be a really academic start to our next sermon, just a heads up. We're going to look at really how unhelpful a bunch of the translations that we work with in Leviticus. It kind of sucks the life out of it like a leech. And one of those really unhelpful translations is our word offering. The word in Leviticus literally is near bringing or bringing near. And so Leviticus is all about offerings. It's all about ways that Israel can draw near to their God. In fact, in Leviticus, God is so close to Israel that he's kind of a micron away from being too close. In fact, he gets up so close to Moses and speaks more directly and plainly and intimately with him than any other Bible character until 1,400 or so years later, where, to use the first chapter of John's Gospel's language, God literally tabernacles, God tents with us in human flesh. Jesus comes born as a man. So let me make my point again. Without Leviticus, we are not saved Without Leviticus, Christians are in peril. Not, to be clear, because this is liable for misunderstanding, not because the sacrifices of Leviticus saved. No, they couldn't. The Bible is clear. The endless bloodbath that was that system of sacrifice could, at best, temporarily take away sin and guilt. Never permanently, never truly and deeply. Leviticus saves because it points us to Christ. And you see this as we're going through Hebrews for a reason in our Bible studies. Jesus is the true Leviticus. He's the priest, the temple, the sacrifice, the throne, the mercy seat, the tribute offering, the food offering, the drink offering, the incense, the dwelling. He is the grace of God. And you see, without Leviticus, Christ's death, well, it kind of gets all its meanings and categories in a significant sense from Leviticus, his death being about a penalty, penal, substitutionary, atoning, ransoming, redeeming, justifying, purifying, forgiving, covenantally confirming. All these categories come from Leviticus. As my friend put it, Leviticus is the whole play fully rehearsed and performed, displayed before men and angels. He goes on to say, Leviticus is the very foundation, the scaffolding, the framework, the blueprint, or the tapestry design for the proper understanding of what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So it saves because it points us to Christ, but it also saves because it preserves the bloodline, the seed line of the Messiah. You see, without Leviticus, without that temple structure, the tabernacle structure and the sacrifices, the people of Israel, God's seed, would have become a pile of ash and dirt. And the Messiah, Jesus, who would come, the promised seed who crushes Satan's head, he would never have come about. You could put it like this. For a thousand or so years, Leviticus kept humanity on life support incubating until that seed, Jesus, arrived.
to bring it to a close. Leviticus might be the skeleton coast for many, but I contend this morning that our understanding of humanity's plight, our understanding of God's mercy, of our sin and Jesus' majesty, of our wretchedness and God's holiness, our understanding of all that will be paper-thin and skeletal without Leviticus. Here's my closing pitch for our series. My hope for this 10 or so weeks in Leviticus is that God would grow our love and our awe for him. My hope is that we're won over, maybe for the first time, maybe for the eighth time, maybe for the 800th time, won over to the greatest story of all. A story of sacred space, of serpents, of seeds, of shields, of sacrifices and salvation. A story that's all true as well. And that as we live and move and have our being in this story, as we see how it kind of connects with the rest of Scripture and perhaps might breathe fresh life into the pages of the Bible for us, that we'll see that this story monsters, destroys, annihilates all the other stories that our world live by. That we see that the story of Scripture is better than Disney, better than Marvel, better than BuzzFeed, better than celebrity culture, better than victim culture, better than wealth accumulation, than academic success. Better than our world's shallow promises of self-expression and sexual self-realization. It plays a better tune than what our world dances and listens along to. Ultimately, that we are wowed and amazed at the majesty, the wisdom, the power, the authority, and the overflowing and abounding grace and mercy of our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. We thank you for what it points to about who we are and who you are. And ultimately, we are so grateful for how it points and preserves, how it guides us to look and see at the wonder and the beauty of our Lord Jesus. That from it, we're given so many more angles so that like a diamond, we might see the facets of Christ's death and resurrection for us that you might use these 10 weeks to shape my heart, shape our hearts, so that we have the eyes to see the brilliance of this story. In Jesus' name, amen.